Our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Kings 5, 1 through 15. It says, So Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is speaking a a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of the God, And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him and said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning. It's a blessing to be here this morning and to have the opportunity to worship with you and share God's word with you. And I can tell you that this room looks and feels much different than it did the first time I walked in here. And it's a testimony to the grace of God to have the opportunity to see so many old friends and many new faces gathered together in this room to praise God for what he's done in Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the things that my wife Beth and I enjoy doing is visiting old lighthouses. And several years ago, we were in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and we decided to go see the lighthouse at Crisp Point on Lake Superior. And uh, I'm sure you've never heard of Crisp Point because it is literally in the middle of nowhere. And I wasn't even really sure how to get there, so we picked up a map from some lighthouse enthusiasts, these people that do this all the time, 
And um, this map had us going like 30 miles in the wrong, like the opposite direction, and then catching a road that hugged the lake and kind of working our way back over to the, along the coast to where the lighthouse was. But when I got in the car, I noticed the map on the GPS showed an unnamed road going basically from where we were straight up there. So Beth suggested that we ask somebody. Obviously, that was a crazy idea. <laughs> like, what? So I headed down my newly discovered road. And at first, it was a gravel road, well-maintained. But after several miles, it became a logging road. Just two dirt tracks with some grass growing in the center. I thought, okay, we can deal with that. But then several more miles, it basically turned into a trail. Parts of it were grown over, and in other places, we were driving on nothing but sand or mud. And keep in mind, we weren't driving a Jeep or a Land Rover. We, we had a, an SUV that I had just bought for her, <coughs> like, a few weeks prior. Thankfully, we had four-wheel drive, or, or this st I might still be up there. Uh, finally, this road did finally connect to a regular road, and we made it. And, but when we got out, the car was entirely encased with mud and dirt. There were branches and vegetation sticking out of every crack on that car. And let's just say Beth was not too happy. There, there weren't a lot of conversations going on during the rest of that morning. The truth is, I didn't know how to get there. And rather than trust the word of somebody who had been there and knew how to get there, I decided to do it myself. A lot of trouble could have been avoided had I just listened. But my pride got in the way. It's often like that with us in our spiritual lives, isn't it? Jesus came down from heaven knowing that we were lost and unable to make the journey. And he promises us that if we Stop trying to get there on our own and figure it out on our own and just trust him and follow him. He will take us there. But often our pride lures us into trusting ourselves and we insist on trying to do it our own way. Find our own path. And even as believers, we encounter all sorts of unnecessary difficulties in our lives simply because we fail to trust God's word fail to trust God's promises. And this tendency to rely on our own understanding, to chart our own course without seeking divine direction, actually reflects a deeper issue with us, and it's the issue of self-sufficiency. The gospel, however, points us to something that is a starkly different truth. Salvation is not something we can achieve through our own efforts or our own wisdom. Salvation comes through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. He's the only way. Unlike my trip to Chris Point, there really truly is only one way to get to heaven, and that is to trust in the salvation that God offers through faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. And that brings me to the main point of our message this morning. Those who abandon self-sufficiency and trust instead in God's promises will be saved. And we have a tremendous illustration of that in our passage this morning. In fact, we're going to see several examples 
of people's reactions to God's word and, and the results of each of those reactions. But our main focus is going to be on the blessing that comes from setting aside our pride and trusting in God. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5, and we'll begin at verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So here we are introduced to this great man, a general of the armies of Syria. This is a man with great power and influence. Syria was one of the superpowers in the world at that time. Naaman is a very important man, but we're told that he's also a leper. He had a debilitating, disfiguring skin disease, and there was no cure for this disease. And those who had it were often quarantined until they died. Naaman had everything the world could offer. Wealth, power, influence, but he also had this crippling disease which brought him shame and would eventually kill him. We're also introduced to this slave girl that worked in his home. She had been kidnapped from her home in Israel and forced into the service of the home of this military commander. And although she'd been kidnapped, we can see how strong her faith is. Because rather than celebrating the misfortune of her captor, she shows grace and shares good news with him that there is healing available through the work of God. How often do we look at other sinners and in our pride think that, well, they're getting what they deserve? rather than being moved to share the good news that healing is available. How often are we tempted to take pleasure at the misfortune of our enemies, rather than pity them as she does here? This girl has nothing in the world. She doesn't even have a home. But she's rich in hope because she trusts God. She probably doesn't even understand why her life is so difficult. Maybe you don't understand this morning why God has put you where you are either. But I want you to watch what God is going to do through her childlike faith. You might not know what God's doing right now in your life, but you can trust him that he has a loving purpose in it. You are not here by accident. And neither is she there by accident. This poor girl who isn't even named, she doesn't even have a name, shares her trust in God with Naaman's wife, and he is healed, and God is glorified because of her faith. Think of how many generations have been encouraged and glorified God because of her faith. Brothers and sisters, you do not have to be 
in some kind of impressive position to serve the Lord. You don't have to be a great preacher or a great evangelist. You don't have to have seminary degrees. If you believe in the gospel, all you need is the confidence to tell other people what God has done and what he has promised to do. He will bless them. The confidence that comes from putting aside trusting in our own qualifications and trusting instead that God will save is all we need to be a blessing. Trust that God keeps his promises. I pray that God would give each one of us here this morning the faith he gave this little girl. She trusted God and many were blessed, including hopefully us here this morning. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy. When Naaman hears this news, he tells his boss, the king, what the girl said. And the king approves. In fact, he turns this into an official diplomatic visit. He writes the king of Israel a letter and gives him what is today around $7 million. The Syrian king is communicating to the king of Israel that he wants Naaman to get the best care and best attention. And he wants to be sure that the purpose of his coming is not misunderstood. Because remember, Syria and Israel are enemies. And Naaman is the commander of the army. There's a lot that could go wrong here. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he's seeking a quarrel with me. When the king of Israel receives this letter, he thinks that the king of Syria is looking for an excuse to go to war. So he tears his clothes, which is a sign of great distress. He's terrified. His reaction is the opposite of the little girl. Alas, I say. He didn't trust in the promises of God or God's grace. He should have known better than virtually anybody else on the planet at the time the nature of God's faithfulness and the nature of God's grace. But he was blind to it. God had brought an enemy to the king seeking a blessing, but the king had no faith in the promises of God to bless. In Genesis 12, 2 and 3, God says to Israel, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The king was supposed to be a representative of God, and yet he never even considers the power of God to deliver on this request. It doesn't even occur to him to summon the prophet, or apparently even to pray. Instead of pointing the world to the one true God, 
The king looks at his own resources, which leads to despair and desperation. And sadly, it's not uncommon that even those, in some cases, who are called to be messengers of grace and the goodness of God are often blind to it. But even when the faith of leaders fail, we don't need to despair because God's promises do not depend on men. Verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me now that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So the prophet Elisha rebukes the king for his lack of faith. Although the king cannot cure leprosy, God certainly can. Elisha trusts God, and so he tells the king, send the general to me. This is an opportunity for God to demonstrate that he is greater than the false gods of Syria. And Elisha says, let him come so that he knows that there is a prophet of the true God in Israel. So unlike the king, Elisha trusts in God. Like the little girl, his faith is strong. He has no hesitation inviting others to come and see and taste that the Lord is good. He is bold in his invitation and in his confidence that God will act somehow to bring glory to his name. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray that God would grant us all hearts like this. That we would be so satisfied by the goodness of God and that we would have so much confidence in his promises that we would unhesitatingly invite everyone, come and see, knowing that they will not be disappointed. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. Can you picture this scene in your mind? Here comes the great general of the Syrian army, attended by all his servants and chariots and horses and wagons filled with treasure. It, it, it makes me think of that scene from Aladdin when Prince Ali comes to Agrabah. You know, just this massive thing. So I'm not sure where Elisha lived, but I'm guessing it wasn't in a palace. And here, down his road, comes this parade. It must have been quite a scene. The great and mighty Naaman has arrived with his entourage. <laughs> Elisha, however, is not impressed. In fact, he doesn't even come out and greet him. Instead, he just sends out a messenger that tells him, okay, go wash in the Jordan seven times. Basically, he keeps Naaman waiting outside on the porch. There's no official greeting, no pomp and circumstance, nothing. Naaman is not used to being treated like this. He's used to being acknowledged. He's an important man. He's used to being treated as someone of importance. Elisha actually sends him the answer that he was looking for, but Naaman misses the point. He's so absorbed 
with his own expectations that he doesn't grasp the deep and glorious truth that the prophet has shared with him. And that's a deep and glorious truth that we need to hear as well. Naaman doesn't understand that what is needed to heal him is not a great deed or a great donation, but faith in the word of God. So rather than being thankful, he is offended. Verse 11 says, but Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in a rage. So now we learn something else about Naaman. Not only does he have leprosy of the skin, he has leprosy of the heart. It was not just his body that was disfigured by a fatal disease, but his soul as well. Naaman's heart is infected with pride. He's not just disappointed. It says he's in a rage. The word of God doesn't just disappoint him, it offends him. God gave him an answer, but he doesn't want to hear that answer because it doesn't accommodate his high view of himself. Although he was desperately sick, he was not prepared to be humbled. And so he's insulted by the good news that he's received. He's thinking, I've traveled a great distance at a great expense, and the prophet won't even come out and acknowledge me? He's not going to make me feel important? Doesn't he know who I am? Didn't he see all the treasures and gifts that I brought with me that I'm willing to give so that I may be blessed? Naaman expects there to be some kind of production. He says, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand, call upon the name of his Lord and wave his hand over the place. It's often the case with us sinners that we're attracted to the show rather than the truth. God offers name and healing, but rather than receive the word with joy and in faith and obedience, he is looking for an impressive display there must be more he is at the very door of salvation and yet because of his pride he's tempted to turn away how many sinners have come right up to the door and never been cleansed because of pride how many have turned away in anger rather than humbling themselves because a simple promise seems too simple to them it doesn't seem like enough. How often do we doubt it? Because it just doesn't seem like enough. It's easy, friends, to find churches that are gospel plus churches. They preach the word, but then something else is added. And it's something that they find essential to what they're doing. 
Gospel plus entertainment. Gospel plus politics. Gospel plus social action. Gospel plus whatever. You can fill in the blank. And they make a big production out of whatever it is that they add. And it's not enough for them to just rest in the promises of God and the salvation he offers. There's got to be something more. There's got to be a show. There's got to be something that we're doing. It's gospel plus look at us. It's my prayer for this church in Pittsburgh that you will be so satisfied with Christ and so amazed at the grace of your salvation and so confident in the promises of God's word that you need nothing more than that to satisfy you and drive you to worship and obey. I pray that if the word is faithfully preached from this pulpit, you never leave disappointed. That knowing how much God loves you is enough every day. Naaman wants God to work according to his expectations in a way that makes sense to his view of things. And he's still focusing on outward things. And his pride makes the word that he heard very difficult to accept because it's not about him. And he says, are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? I don't know if you've ever seen the Jordan River, but as far as rivers go, it's not very impressive. We're not talking about the Nile or the Amazon or even the Allegheny. Naaman assumes that the effectiveness in his obedience comes from the works themselves. How could the muddy Jordan be better than the clean, clear water of the rivers at home? See, he's, he's using his assessment. Do you see how pride has blinded him? He is the one in need. He's the one with the problem. But when the answer doesn't meet his expectations, he rejects it. Isn't that how it is with us sinners? God's word tells us all we need to know to be healed and to find peace, and yet we still somehow think that we can do it better. We think our way would be just as good. And so too often we remain in darkness rather than simply trusting and obeying what God has called us. Well, Naaman, if your rivers are so good in Syria, what are you doing here? If your answers are so much better than what God offers, why do you still suffer with leprosy? The priests and the kings and the prophets of Syria could not help him. And he's traveled all this way, but is still unwilling to trust God's promise and take a simple step of faith. But his servants came near and said to him, my father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So once again in this narrative, the wisdom of the servants is contrasted with the foolishness of the mighty. First it was the little slave girl, and now it's his servant. And they can see how irrational this response is. They can see his pride, and they respectfully point out to him 
that Elijah has actually offered him what he came looking for. The letters, the treasure, the journey, everything was prepared for him to come and be clean. And that's exactly what was offered to him. How could he turn back now? And in fact, the Hebrew here can actually be read a little stronger. There's a little more pushback here. The NASB translated this way. My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? He's tried everything. He was willing to come this far. He has no other options. What does he have to lose? And I want to ask you, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ and the promise of salvation offered in him, what do you have to lose? He should be celebrating that all that is required is a simple act of faith rather than some great work. So the servants basically say, well, why don't you just trust God and see what happens? Verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. Naaman finally submits to God's word. The word repent, I imagine you use that a lot around here, that word just means to turn around and go the other direction. And that's literally what happens with Naaman. His initial reaction was to turn away from God's word, but now he turns around and he responds in obedience to the word that he's been given. And through that faith, he receives a new lease on life. He gets more than just healing, in fact. His skin is not simply restored to the scarred, rugged skin of a warrior who had seen many battles. It's made solid and soft like a little baby. It's like he was born again. As I reflected on this, what struck me the most was how absolutely scandalous this is. Naaman is the commander of the army of one of Israel's fiercest enemies. Many of God's people had died and suffered because of him. Anyone who would have killed or captured him in battle would have been a national hero. Yet here he is on the verge of death. That is outrageous. Do you see? That is outrageous. It would be similar to a Hamas leader being healed and, and blessed by a prominent leader in Israel today. It would be like Osama bin Laden flying to New York and going to the best hospital and receiving life-saving surgery and then being sent home with the blessings of the city. It is shocking this narrative is shocking. But do you know what else is shocking and just as scandalous? That salvation's been offered to me and to you. Brothers and sisters, our story is not very much different from Naaman's. What God does physically for Naaman is an illustration 
of what he does spiritually for every sinner who is ever saved. We too were enemies of God and of his people, and the grace shown to us is just as outrageous. We deserve death and punishment, but instead Christ offers to give us his own perfect life and an eternity of blessing. We too were afflicted with a fatal spiritual leprosy that cannot be cured by any means known to the world. Our salvation cannot be bought with great treasure or earned through great deeds. Our only hope is to set aside our pride, to be humbled, and to go to Christ, accept the promise of his word by faith, and be born again. There's nothing in us that was attractive or worth saving. The rebellion of our hearts against God is evidenced by the sin that's in our lives, and every one of us knows that we've broken God's law. We have failed to live up to our own standards, let alone God's perfect standard of holiness and righteousness, but an act of tremendous mercy and love. A holy God stooped down to provide salvation to guilty sinners. God's grace is amazing because it's poured out on his enemies. Jesus came from heaven and lived a perfect life as a man, the life we were supposed to live. He fulfilled all righteousness, earning all the rewards that God intended for his people. Then in an act of amazing grace, Jesus, the innocent, perfect man, took upon himself the guilt of all who would ever believe in him. He offered himself in our place and was crucified as payment for our sin on a cross. Then after three days, he rose again, proving that the justice of God had been satisfied. And so by the shedding of his blood, we who were his enemies are forgiven. Not only that, but we who, are, who were rebels are adopted as sons and daughters of the king and made heirs to his kingdom. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. But we don't deserve any of that. It comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone, our sin is no less repulsive than Naaman's leprosy. Just like Naaman, our only hope of salvation is to accept the promise of God's word by faith. To just trust him when he says that all who believe in Jesus will be raised on the last day. If by God's grace you've come to understand that you are a sinner in need of salvation, be glad because God sent his son to save sinners. Jesus did not save the Jesus did not come to save good people. There aren't any. Nobody is good enough to earn a place in heaven. We are not saved because of our great love for God. We're saved because of his great love for us. Therefore, as we come before the throne of grace and worship today, let us be glad and accept in faith the promise of healing and place no pride whatsoever in our earthly treasures or talents or any of that. You remember our main point? Those who abandon self-sufficiency and trust in God instead 
trust in his promises will be saved. And so if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ and you're hearing this message, I want you to know that you are standing at the very door of salvation. Do not turn away. God is offering you healing and peace and joy this very minute. You know that your way is not working. Trust in his word. Put your hope in him for salvation in Christ alone and be washed clean. In his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus has paid the price for sin and offers eternal life to all who will put their faith in him as their Lord and Savior. He's true to his word and his blood is sufficient. The price has been paid. Listen, I don't know your story. I don't know what you've done or what you've failed to do. But I know what he's done. And because of that, I know that the only sin that can possibly keep you out of heaven is the sin of unbelief. Because you're too proud to humble yourself and accept the sacrifice that's been made. God is not reluctant to save. Just as God washed away Naaman's leprosy in the muddy waters of the Jordan River, he, wa- he promises to wash away your sins on the bloody cross of Calvary. All you need to do is repent and believe. And if you're already a believer in Jesus, I pray that you will have the childlike faith of that little slave girl and point others with confidence to a gracious God so that they may also be saved. I pray that whenever we are tempted to be proud, we will remember that everything we have of any value has come to us only through the scandal of God's great mercy in loving those who do not deserve it. I'd like to finish this morning with the exhortation of the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you.